Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them. Hello, and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. Today, we present an interview of Wakefield Brewster, led by Mark Herman Lynch. My name is Rebecca Shalane, and I am a postdoctoral scholar for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. Mark Herman Lynch and Wakefield Brewster kick off this interview by discussing sound and how it relates to Wakefield's evolving monikers, from the lyrical pitbull to the word wizard. Wakefield tells how his musical upbringing led him to poetry, how race relations imbue his work and have influenced the evolution of his career, and the difference between performance poetry and poetry written for the page. Wakefield then reflects on his educational approaches and how a sense of disruption is a vital part of his teaching for young writers. Mark Herman Lynch is a mixed-race writer currently doing a PhD at the University of Calgary and serving as president of Filling Station magazine. Each summer, he works with the creative team at Wordsworth Youth Writing Camp to teach young writers. He lives in Mokinstis, otherwise known as Calgary, in Treaty 7 Territory, Alberta. His debut novel, Arborescent, was published by Arsenal Pulp Press in 2020. In 1999, Wakefield Brewster stepped onto his first stage as a poet and spoken word artist. Today, he is known as one of Canada's most powerful professional performance poets. A black man raised in Toronto by parents from Barbados, he has resided in Calgary since 2016. Throughout his career, Wakefield has been published in several anthologies and has released two recordings, Wakefield Brewster, The Lyrical Pitbull, produced by Kill Whitey Records in 2007, and East to West, produced by Spanish Fly Music in 2008. Among his many roles in the poetry and arts communities, Wakefield Brewster is the Calgary Poet Laureate from 2022 to 2024. Hello, Wakefield. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be here. This is indeed a great day. So I've been listening to a lot of your interviews recently, and I just want to say 
Yeah, no, you're fantastic. The way you're able to express uh, just to kind of like interviewers who may not be on your kind of like your same page sometimes and you mm. get them onto your same page, you kind of bring them to you a little bit. It's pretty spectacular. Thank you. I don't even really, you can't see yourself all the time, right? Yeah. Or even most of the time. So yeah. you saying that makes me feel good about what it is I'm not quite noticing I'm doing. Thanks for saying that. Yeah, no, it's really impressive. It's a tough thing to do, right? Particularly when you're kind of yeah, working with media and you're trying to kind of navigate their questions in the way that they want you to answer, but not exactly in the way that you want to answer. You don't want to be a panderer, right? They want that soundbite. They want you to get that exact soundbite. And you're like, I'm not going to give you that exact soundbite. I'm going to give you something around it though, right? So yeah, I'll give you I'll give you a sound that bites, Ooh, but I won't give you the soundbite. Actually, that's a great way of articulating your name. The, uh, the lyrical pitbull, uh, the sound that bites. Yes, Is that actually part of it? It was how I, it's usually, it was how I bite the mic. And I usually never said out to peeps about the sound that bites. That was something right. I have reserved. I'm, I'm surprised I actually threw it out. But yeah, that yeah. was another part of the lyrical pitbull, the sound that bites. And then when we look at monikers, I didn't give myself that moniker. That was given to me by we'll say appreciators, fans, we'll say, you know, back in the right. day when I began poetry, the lyrical pitbull, right. and there was a few little entendres to it. One of them being how you can say, hey, is it about how you attack your performance? And yeah, that was the whole thing. Yeah. It's because I have a very energetic approach to performance poetry, but also because I'm a Torontonian. And at that time, that was when we had a whole load of pit bull attacks, a whole load of bull terrier attacks. Right. So terriers, bull terriers got banned. And yeah. so it was kind of cool. I was like this banned breed of <laughs> OMC on the yeah. mic. And as I've gotten older and as you see whiter, it's funny how some of this, it's been students and it's been me working with alliteration. People have noticed alliteration is it's in my language. Yeah. Word wizard has come up and it feels good too. I don't feel like I'm betraying the lyrical yeah. pitbull, but I am 50 now. I do attest that too. I really love life. Yeah, I'm happy. I'm yeah. very positive. Maybe some might even think toxically but I try to share my happiness. I don't keep it to yeah. myself. Yeah. I think that energy gives me a youthful presentation and black don't crack. So if it wasn't for <laughs> all the white, I think yeah, I yeah. would actually pass off as much younger. So now I'm, I'm maturing yeah, and yeah. word wizard has that air, that aura of, Hey, are you Ooh. wise? Well, I can't say wise, but I know yeah. some shit. And, um, <laughs> it's another moniker that's starting to attach. Yeah. It shows some life. It shows some longevity. Yeah, yeah. That a new moniker is starting to attach right. itself to you. And it's come after 23 years on the bike. Like, right. by that time, you better be old. <laughs> like I, I love say, that. The word wizard. Absolutely. Right. So I'm going with it. You'll see it. It's been, I've been tagging it. Word wizard. I'm like, I go with it. Wakefield, word wizard, DLWs. Like, come on. I actually have a poll that I'm creating around the letter W. Mm. It's going to be high. Actually, because like in your poetry, you actually like to use a lot of hard consonants when you're using that alliteration. It's that hard hitting sound. I believe 
that has to do a bit with my musicianship. Mm. So the trifecta is I'm a classical pianist, I'm a percussionist, and I'm a rapper. So I've been playing keyboards since I was six. I started striking things at age 12, and then I picked up writing at age 16. So I believe that people can, although I can't sing a note, you know, I could hum a tune and I do it in private because it's poor. I can't <laughs> sing and you don't want me to, but I know that my voice has melody. People have said, it sounds like you're singing, but you're not singing. That's because mm. I've been working with 88 keys. I know how to work with movement melody. When it comes to, you just put it out there, those hard consonants, especially when I'm using alliterative passages like, in the second world, concepts of calculating communism created the construct commencing the crushing Cold War. I'm a percussionist, and now you hear the... Interesting. The interesting part about doing a poem with Ws then and alliterating on W's is you actually lose that and it becomes much softer. Well, that depends on what kind of English are you employing? Because my people have an English of our own and it has been evolving over time into many different forms, facets and forgeries. Yeah. So you can do the unconventional with yep. those conventional things and you're correct you're absolutely correct and anyone who is adept with language like you right away would say that's going to be hard to do if you traditionally yeah. Yeah. approach it this could be quite difficult i'm not that traditional yeah <laughs> well it, it's interesting because even if you think about the lyrical pitbull it has the kind of the hard consonants the hard sounds and then you move into the word wizard. Suddenly, it's it actually is a little softer. The percussive end is lost. Yeah. But there is a legato now. So when you have staccato, yeah. the lyrical pit bull, now you have the word wizard. Interesting. So it's smoother. Yeah, absolutely. Was it your first album, self-titled Wakefield Brewster, the, the lyrical the pit bull? Yeah. So it has that kind of Rastafarian vibe. Some songs, right? Oh, like, yes. I threw in some influence. Yes, some island mm -hmm. influence, I like to say. It goes from Bob Marley-esque type of songs. And there's like the spoken word, and then there's no background track. And then you kind of go into the old school hip hop. It's very, very interesting kind of combination and movement through it. Because even like thinking about a, a collaboration that you did with Lizzie Munson, right? The cellist. All of a yes. sudden, now you're back into a sort of more classical vein, right? What do each of those types of music genres give you differently? That first album was a very spirited effort. It was me putting out those tendrils of different influential artistic sources mm. that I funnel back to oral presentation. I was just, I just saw the, the question put out on Twitter. One of my writer friends put out, what do you listen to when you write? Here is a great way to where I'm at. I listen to dub reggae, very little words. It's hypnotic, super bass. It is driven. The voices of these Rasta man, it is jubilation. You can hear in song them call to Jai. This connects to me. Although 
I am a Bayesian and this is a Jamaican art form of music where Black people, where Africans, I'm connected to it. I have never felt such a pull, connection, safety net. I've never felt such a bed of music right. like dub reggae. I am a rapper. I am classically trained. And I can't take those two musics out of me. I have embraced all of the musical techniques that European classical has shown me, exposed me to. I've moved them from the physicality and made them ethereal coming out of my mouth. The reason my poetry has this type of delivery is because of my musicianship. I have to thank every moment I spent right. learning the Baroque period of classical. Right. That is where the big draw comes from, counterpoint, Baroque. That's yeah. where you hear that rhythm. How do I enunciate even through very difficult passages? Regardless, mm -hmm. it's because I'm a rapper. And it's not because I ever wanted to be a fucking rapper. Right. But I'm a black right, right. man from 70 fucking two. What do little black boys especially do? We rap. It's what we do. It's mm -hmm. what we're supposed to fucking do. It's our language. It's in us. It's in some of us more than others. So we hear our heroes on the radio. We hear Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. We hear the Sugar Hill Gang. We hear the old shit. You start learning that language just as a fun way to speak. Mm. So that has been in me since I could hear music. I've been playing classical, listening to rap and hip hop. What became hip hop is the culture. I've been listening to rap. These things, these three trifectas of percussion, piano, and rap have driven the delivery and driven the techniques that I use to create the poetry that I come familiar with you do taekwondo is that correct yes i do have a black belt in taekwondo i no longer train like i used to at all when i train it's period of self-reliance a few years ago i had a knee surgery from a lot of kicking i hope to go back to it seriously as i age yep. to at least get my second dad before i become a senior is what i'd really love to do yeah. i am very honestly add adhd and I need to move or I feel uncomfortable. People have asked me, what is the connection between poetry and moving? A student said, do you have to move to perform? And I said, I don't move to perform the poetry. The poetry moves me. I'm a natural moving person all the time. And usually it causes distraction, especially for other people when it's just me having to move. When I'm performing, I can move freely, Mark. Mm. It's full body poetry that I can just let go. Now, in the beginning, my body was just moving wherever it moved. Yeah. When I started to look at myself on whatever video was available at the time, because that's what professionals begin to do. They start to look at themselves seriously. Yeah, yeah. When I started to look at myself, I said, I notice I am moving certain ways every time I come to these certain parts and certain poems. I unconsciously was moving to tell the story. Now, as I have aged and I've gotten comfortable with my movement, I have used <clears throat> Taekwondo, which is move with intention, to now intentionally move the story along. Yeah. 
Very cool. So now my full body poetry is not just Wakefield flowing with it now. Yeah. I'm actually choreographing some of the pieces yeah. so I can be more connected, give you more of the story and help movement be more natural while I'm up here. What can you do with poetry? No, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> so as you know, and as our listeners may know, uh, I'm referencing one of your flagship poems, right? I can, which begins with that question and essentially throughout the poem gives the listener ammunition. So by the end, they can answer the rebuttal, which is why don't you tell me what you can do with poetry? How did you come to poetry? One and who or what gave you that ammunition? to become Wakefield Brewster? I came to poetry because I had a life that was in the arts. And so I find anyone who is an artist in any way, shape or form, they don't just love their discipline. They tend to love the arts. So somehow, some way, one day, keeping in mind, I'm born in 72. So that means social media was books, TV, radio, newspapers, and movies. Right. So information came relatively way slower. And if it was the wrong information, it took three, five, ten times longer to hear the correct stuff. So I was watching TV one day. So this is uh, age 16. And I have already started playing piano at age six, actually organ, then piano, and then percussion at 12. I was already planning to be one of the only black concert pianists in Europe playing in amphitheaters for hundreds of people on pianos that cost more than cars. That mm. is a fucking weird dream for a little black kid from Toronto, Scarborough. But that was the dream. I wanted to be a concert pianist. All of a sudden, one day on TV, something struck me. I don't remember what I saw and I don't remember what I heard. Whatever I saw, whatever I heard on the TV that day, it freaked me out. It was obviously powerful. It was poetic. I tore through the house. I tore through the place looking for a pen and pencil, mm. scribbled out this poem, and it was fucking terrible. It sucked, all right? It was horrible. <laughs> it's, it's the first poem. So, yeah, I yeah. mean, when does man do anything right the first time? That doesn't blow him up, and it's good. But the thing is this. I had been playing Bach, Brahms, yeah. Schubert, Chopin, Bartok. I've been playing these masters, these greats, when really that was just practicing to become a professional parrot. That's right. their shit. That's not mine. I didn't know differently. This was the first time mm. I wrote the notes. This was the first time I experienced creation. That feeling has never left me because here we are 23 years later. I'm still right. writing. So that whatever it is, and I can't remember, something changed my life. Actual two poems that night yeah. and never stopped. Didn't tell anyone about writing poetry until long after I was out of high school and through university. That was a later venture, bringing it to the world. Mm -hmm. But I began when I was 16, a memory that I can't identify, but it was something yeah. on TV, powerful and poetic. That's when I wrote my first poem. Years later, I was at York University practicing to be a pianist, and I reached my limit. I realized no matter how good I was, I wasn't going to be great. Humans have limits. 
And I wasn't going to be that kind of pianist. I simply did not have that ability. No amount of practice was going to get the Brandenburg concertos under my belt. Nothing like that. The Goldberg variations, it was going to happen. I switched to percussion. So you go from a performance atmosphere of 45 students down to six. Only six of us are in the percussion program. So I've already got the creation bug. I started writing years ago. I want yeah. to compose stuff. So I'm thinking with a six-man crew, I guess this leaves room for composition. And no, they said, play the little black dots. So I was pretty bummed out because there was no creative license. What happened was I decided I will try the poetry program while I'm here. I'll double major. I'll be bored here, but yeah. maybe I'll be excited with poetry. And people think I'm okay. Yeah, yeah. So after two or three assignments, my professor, she sent me an email saying my poetry was garbage, nonsense, and gobbledygook. I was put on academic probation and failed out of York University. What? And at York University was one professor of humanities, and her name is Sherry Rowley, and she is still there. And Sherry Rowley was this one professor who just gave me a good trusting vibe. So I gave her a dual tang, literally a dual tang of my first works of poetry and said, look, I just need a professional, adult, educated opinion on what it is you see that I'm trying to do here. Right. And she basically kept it for about two weeks, kept me in a lot of freaking suspense. When she gave me the dual tang back at the end of the fucking class, no less, when I opened it up, all I could see was red pen all over the thing, just red which we right. all know, but she was just fucking with me. She was writing all kinds of great shit. <laughs> she said, you're a poet and you've yeah. got to do this. She didn't care why I was there at York. Yeah. She didn't care if it was piano, percussion or poetry. She, she said, I don't care who you think you are. She said, but you're also this poet. You need to poet. And yeah. that was the moment that I believed in myself. I think a lot of, BIPOC artists have to go through this process of you inherit a tradition, a European tradition. And I went through this same type of thing where all of a sudden I'm just like reading classics, white Americans, white Europeans. And I thought that's the way I have to write. I have to write in Spencerian stanza if I'm going to do poetry. It was Suzette Mayer who told me, she gave me a little bit of a note at the end of my master's, no less, on my completed master's thesis. She said, hey, this one character that you wrote, who is a mixed race Asian Canadian, was pretty interesting and you didn't really develop that person. And I was like, why didn't I develop that one person who was so closely related and connected to my experience and all the other characters I was writing were white? It was just this one breakthrough moment of what was I doing? Just following the footsteps. That reminds me of a study that I had heard of whatever the year was, and it was some years back before the world got woke. A study was done in an American school, and they had a bunch of kids. It was culturally diverse, the classroom, but these kids were very, very young. Four, five, six. They said, draw people. And no matter what ethnic background the kids were, they all drew white kids. Yeah, yeah. They all drew white kids. Man, of course they would. That tells you what the world is doing. Mm -hmm. And it still did it to you. 
and it has done it to me when it came to writing i'm not good at that shit so i took poetry elsewhere and that's what they didn't like and the other thing is translation my poems on paper they don't make sense if you haven't heard me it's hard to read me and I think that loss of translation is quite apparent. And now that I am a laureate and I have some literary leverage, of course, I'm going to foray into my first book. But man, I'm wondering how that's going to fly. <laughs> <laughs> but you you have pieces out. Like, for example, I'm just thinking of, um, I believe it's T-Dot. Is that correct? Yes, I have uh, H2O in T-Dot Griots. T.Griots, and then you also have a few more in different kind of anthologies, right? I'm like the least published poet I know. I have like four pieces published in four anthologies. That is the bulk of my published work. I have one in T.Griots. I have one in the Calgary Project right. when Symphony Dronic and Chris Demeanor was the laureate. I have one in a recent one called uh, The Black Prairies that was put up by Wolf of Lori Press. Karina Vernon is the publisher. And then there's like one or two in between. It's an interesting concept to think about the performance, which is an ephemeral experience that comes over you and washes over you. Well, actually, you know what? Not ephemeral. Ephemeral is not the right word because it can last for a long time. The performance itself has to live in the experience of the person. Whereas the poem that's put on the page, the immortality of it is the fact that it's like stuck in a book. So there's this sort of stasis to it. How do you reconcile those two? I refer to the reconciliation humbly as the Morgan Freeman effect. And if you are familiar with that voice, if you're familiar with especially James Earl Jones, There are voices in our worlds that are cross-culture, strikingly gripping and made familiar and even referenced to. Now that I've said Morgan Freeman, if you are familiar with him, go read a dictionary, go read a newspaper and think, boom, you can hear him. So I beg of people that if they wish to read me, please indulge in hearing me several times. If my voice, you know, latches on to you, then when you read these words going to mind, you're going to hear them. And that's the Morgan Freeman effect. You know, it, it's funny, just even talking about Morgan Freeman for a second, before he was cast as God in Bruce Almighty, he said that he was pretty sure that somebody was going to cast him as God at one point in time in his life because of the way his voice sounded did he really yeah he said that it was he was sure of it that it was going to happen one day and it's funny that you're saying that because again morgan freeman's voice and then you attach it to god and how people think of god and all of a sudden yeah i can hear god's voice there it is right god talks a lot about penguins here that's why i refer to it in that way humbly i don't believe i'm that But I believe if you wish to really indulge in any voice in its written static form, you should have something to liven it up. Mm -hmm. And that is a true neurologically bonded 
yeah. memory to the sound. And it's actually, it's practicing that orality. The poetry is oral and then to kind of just force it into kind of static schematics. And then yeah. when you hear it, you're like, oh, I get it. It's the same with Shakespeare even, right? Most people try to read it on a page. And if you try to read it on a page, you don't get the whole purpose. The whole purpose was to see it. And I beg of people to try that. Yeah. I forget that professor's name who called my, my work shit. I don't know if they're still surviving at this time. I hope you have had a chance to possibly know what yeah. gobbledygook has turned into. It's turned into some pretty good shit. Well, and it's also interesting how the educator in that kind of respect had to educate themselves. In ICANN, you have that term, the educator. So he said, they made me sit still, so I stood still. I can confidently, comfortably cruise into classrooms where I was once coerced to create a captured, cornered mental state so I can clearly create a way to hate my own mind by my educators. They were educators. It's so yeah. beautiful because even when I'm just reading it, I get the cadence. It's bringing me into that sound, that orality, that texture, that percussion like you were talking about. So as a teacher, and we work together a little bit at Wordsworth uh, Youth Writing Camp, which is typically outside of COVID times, a sleepaway camp for young writers ages 12 to 18. So you said that your goal in teaching is not necessarily to create poets. You can't force people to kind of become whatever, but to help people learn to lead with language. And that giving the gift of articulate speech is almost like a martial arts in and of itself. So how do you approach teaching in a different way to these edgy haters to avoid the pitfalls that come with narrow and prescriptive approaches? Number one, teachers didn't look like me. Number one, I visibly walk in and the image is gone. Mm. For once, it might be just what I look like that changes the experience and opens the mind of a kid. All of a sudden, a young brother's like, what the? Yeah, I look like you. Maybe I'll say something, you'll listen to me. Maybe you will ask me a question and I'll have to answer. Maybe you'll ask a question and we'll have to discover what the answer is together. The fact that I don't look like the status quo. First time, it's the greatest advantage for me, man. Interesting, yeah. Now, not looking like what's always been there is absolutely the first visual advantage. I'm not the old fucking program. Yeah. I'm a newer mind with no program. Yeah, and it's even like, if you think about it, clothing. You know how, for example, some professors talk about that their clothing is their armor, as if they have to armor themselves against the students. <laughs> so it's like this idea of respect me because there's tradition there instead of respect me for what I've done, you know? That's institution st that talk, and that's that system yeah. that's that system talk. I'm saying, you and me, we have ink. Kids can see, okay, these guys with the tattoo themselves. Mm. They believe in a door. Oh, that's because they're, they're wearing short sleeves with logos. I don't know that logo. That's because it's mine. You don't know it because it's mine. Yeah. I'm the NDYYC, me and my people, but... I am the Indie YYC in this capacity that they see. This I... is a completely new, fresh, different. And guess what? Every kid across North America believes they speak slang. And they do. 
kids do not speak in complete sentences to one another. They don't even use phrases like one another. So <laughs> as you hear kids speaking in true sound bites, as you hear them speaking in thumb flexes, as you hear them speaking in emojis, all of that is based on what? Slang. Where does slang come from? It comes out of the non-affluent communities of Black people in the ghettos of America. It comes from, number one, not having the education allowed to learn the language per se, right. as the white man did. But because you take it in a different, different direction and learn they can't hear you, let's do that some more. And that's what slang is all about. First, yeah. it just sounded uneducated. That's our code. Slang's code. So we can stand amongst the people we're scared of. It's Jim Crow law time. Mm -hmm. Before civil rights, we're being integrated. They don't want us. We're scared of it. Well, if we're going to talk to each other, it's good that we can speak English and they don't get it. All of this stuff kids speak is a washed down, bastardized derivative of slang. I'm old enough to say I speak that shit on a basement level. That also helps them relate to me. They can hear the old school. They can hear it. It draws them in. I believe that once I can bring them in with that, hey, I speak the language you try to it's easier to take them to a language that you should be able to speak as well. And you know, it's interesting because there's the connection also with community. They're trying to create their own community. They're trying to create their own language. And then they get into structures like education. And it's like, oh, now you're going to stop connecting with community and start becoming more institutionalized. We too often live in the land of or instead of and. Why is it you can have your community language or the man's? Why can't you have the community language? That's what, exactly what I have. I'm a living embodiment of it. I've got the queen's good wherever I fucking need to. But with my people, there's a way Wake speaks to you when you know him, right? And it's familiar and colloquial. So... It comes down to living in the land of and. Mm. If you live in the land of and, your world is twice as big. Absolutely. And then it doesn't cut off capacities or ways of being, right? It adds. You can keep your gutter language if you want with your homeboys and then walk into any place and be listened to. It's great having that vocal versatility. Yeah. I know from talking to students that have worked with you, you captivate them, you capture their attention, and then you show them areas where actually they can then feel comfortable moving into. They don't feel structured and cornered, as you said. I would like to believe that part of my educational mission is to be an interruption in their literary education. I believe I'm made to be a positive disruption. Yeah. When people like yourselves and people who are BAs, MAs, MFAs, PhDs, and all kinds of alphabet after your name, when I get to stand next to you people and you treat me like a colleague of teaching, I can't help but say thank you so much for holding me in that high regard. But 
I definitely still have this to use as my greatest teaching tool. And that is I'm often not your average teacher anyway. Now I get to stand with these particular educators who say you can learn from this guy. In my culture, we say I'm not MFA. They call me NYC. When you don't have traditional letters after your name, if you're not MFA, if you're not BFA, if right. you're not PhD, you're NYC. So if you can make it as a known artist in New York, that means you are uh, fucking on top right. of the case. Yeah. People from the States call me NYC. So as you, as educators get those letters, yeah. if you can stand in the realm of teaching mm -hmm. without being a teacher, they mm. call you NYC. And that is such a, that's an honor. Yes. <laughs> That's an honor because yeah, yeah. I am a north of 49. I'm not from the States. I don't have letters on either side of that border. And there's always a weird disconnection when it comes to where you stand with your people and what you're doing and what they see out in the world. So for my black people, south of 49 to call this brother NYC, yo. Love that. I got another question for you. Oh. So you're a self-confessed Trekkie, right? Yes, I love Star Trek. So do you think that Star Trek has influenced your writing in life? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes. <laughs> Okay, yes. good. Gene Roddenberry and Neil deGrasse Tyson, they put Africa in space. They're heroes of mine. Lieutenant Uhuru, rest in universal peace. Jordy LaForge, we saw those two actors become icons on the bridge thank you gene roddenberry for seeing a bigger greater world where we can stand and take command neil degrasse tyson is probably the foremost mind of black people in astrophysics gene roddenberry thank you for your fiction which was quite factual neil degrasse tyson thank you for letting everybody know that our people are also Einsteins. They put Africa in space. Yeah. Whenever I'm listening to your poetry, I feel almost like I'm listening to somebody who's looking at Earth from a great distance, right? It's sort of like an anthropological analysis to shift us away from how we normally think about the Earth. And I particularly see this in poems, the one that you did for the Alberta Eco Trust, which is quite beautiful, as well as H2O and mediums. And just to give you kind of like a sense of what I mean, like, so for example, in mediums, you say, you keep slinging the mental rocks, burning hot like sunspots, or my heated aspirations to be an element, not simply elemental, but even instrumental, but a song and a symphony. Yeah, I've been asked about this so very recently, and I can't help but say that space and time and thought, I have come to know, thanks to Star Trek, they're not the three separate things that they appear to be. And I can't get over believing in all that is bigger than me. I'm marveled at the sky. It's right the fuck in front of you. What has stopped any human from standing on the edge of a cliff with childlike wonder and saying, holy shit? Yeah. What stops anyone from doing that every day? So I don't know why I'm always marveled at what's bigger, but I am. 
And it is embodied in science fiction and science fact, especially astronomy. And I think it's that wonder, wonder in connection to the world and to the earth and to rootedness that yeah. inundates your poetry that makes it almost like we are looking at the world anew every time. Thank you. That is really super kind. But I try to put all that I feel and all that I am into each poem so that maybe someone will connect like that on a word, if nothing else, on a word. In an interview that you did with Lisa Garot for the podcast, The Connector Next Door, it's a great podcast. People should go and listen to it. You really get into a lot of wonderful detail. Lisa is a really great interviewer as well. You say, I like to bring poetry into places where people don't expect it to be. So what was one of the most difficult situations you've encountered while performing? Have you ever performed for a crowd whose preconceptions of poetry were stacked so high that you had to scale to heights just to catch a glimpse of them? And were you able to break through? I have had instances as such. I can at least refer to an atmosphere. The world is evolving as is how it speaks to itself. And I believe that there are some very genuine attempts at changing negative narratives and employing words as medicine. We are speaking about justice, equity, equality, diversity. We're talking about inclusion, accessibility, and then we're talking about intersectionality. I would like to believe that because especially the workplace has been one of the worst offending environments of disregarding these things, me as a new avenue, bringing those topics into those spaces called boardrooms, called corporate, called right. whitey, called whitey. Bringing me in to talk to whitey in an artistic way. <laughs> hey, Joe Whitey, Mr. Joe Whitey. Bring me in to talk to that person. And I say that in a, I hope that was humorous and glib. Yeah. <laughs> but y'all yeah. know who I mean. That guy. So, so if you're bringing me into a room full of them guys, it is a great opportunity to use this unique, visibly different, visibly opposing, artistically, audibly performance poet who's going to deliver those messages in this way. Because as humans, we accept messages differently if they're presented differently. So if it's just someone up there giving it to you dry in PowerPoint, it's very useful. That's the stem of it. Now I will bring you the arts, the humanities of it. I am often the humanities side of the coin in a place where there often isn't the coin. Those are my hardest audiences. And now that we are shifting our way of speaking, I am being employed more and deployed more into places like that right. where you expect Joe Whitey to be resistant and he may have been throughout the dry presentations informative important but factual dry and then I come in and I say all of these things just like these smart ass people did but differently and with some cryptic shit too <laughs> but you get two sides of this coin 
And the one thing that I have realized, especially as I've become clean, sober, and I've found wellness, is at the end of all those things is the word intersectionality. And that is what my poetry embodies. I don't tell the story of one. Mm. I fucking don't. And you, you, you particularly see that in H2O, where you're... you're Who gets left out there. of the story of water? Who gets left out of that fucking story? Yeah. And also how you connect it with flow and ancestry. There's Thank you. rhythm, ancestry, flow, all within water. Wakefield, this has been such a wonderful opportunity to get to talk with you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This is what I actually wish to be doing with my time. I was not this artist two years ago. So this is all part of a very full, busy, enriching, enhanced artistic life. Mm. I know how it sounds. I thought it was just a white thing when I heard it. I was like, what well, white woman said <laughs> this? And now right here in my little Zoom booth in my basement, like I'm living my best life. And it's because I live a life in the arts. Mm -hmm. So you and this interview, you and Tia House, you and my whole community here, especially in Calgary that has embraced me as their poet laureate, you guys have given me my best life. I thank oh, you all. You are amazing. And uh, thank you so, so much again. We hope you enjoyed this conversation between Wakefield Brewster and Mark Herman Lynch. I'm Rebecca Jelaine, and you're listening to Tea House Talks. Tea House recognizes the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stuckel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Micah Jacobson, Rebecca Jelaine, Mahmoud Ababne, Ryan Stern, Xu Yin Yu, Mark Lynch, Shazia Hafiz, Ramji, Benjamin Gan, and Amy LeBlanc. Our music is Monarch of the Streets by Loyalty Freak Music. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check out our website at www.tiahouse.ca. If you'd like to be in touch, send us an email at tiahouseyyc at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>